welcome to our KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast Series, delivering fresh insights and perspectives around major accounting and financial reporting developments on ESG reporting. We thank you for joining today. Welcome. My name is Julie Santoro. I'm a partner in KPMG's Department of Professional Practice, and I lead our ESG activities there. And I'm joined by two colleagues today from the ESG team, Christina Abbott and Marissa Gerdes. And today we're going to talk about GHG emissions reporting. At the end of March, we released our handbook on this topic that provides a roadmap to GHG emissions reporting, full of questions and answers and examples and calculations. Very importantly to us, the handbook is really designed for accountants and other finance professionals, and it's based on the GHG protocol. So what we want to do today is give you a preview of what's in the handbook. And our objective really is to give you a taster of GHG emissions reporting. And we hope your next step is to go and have a closer look at the handbook and our roadmap. So let me turn first to Christina, who's going to take us through that the first steps you need to take in developing your GHG emissions reporting. Thanks, Julie. So before we get into these first two steps, I just want to bring everyone back to the early 2000s. That's when the corporate standard was first drafted. It was largely based on the accounting standards that were in effect at the time. And as the accounting standards have evolved, it hasn't necessarily kept up. And that's partially also due to the fact that it's been mainly applied outside of the finance function by scientists and engineers. So when we talk about consolidation concepts for greenhouse gas inventories, you might hear some terms that sound very similar, but resist the urge to think about them as you would accounting and reporting standards. Now, first, I want to define the organizational boundary. That is going to include your scope one and scope two emissions, which Marissa is going to get into later. But just know that these are things that you own and control and emissions that are associated with them. Scope one is a direct emission, and scope two is an indirect emission associated with purchased electricity, but still consumed within your organizational boundary. Now, there's three different ways that you can set your organizational boundary, but know that it's a policy choice. It's similar to the reporting entity concept in financial statement accounting, and once you've made that decision, you need to apply it consistently, and it also needs to be applied consistently within your consolidated boundary. So there's three different approaches. Those three approaches include the equity share approach and a control approach that has either an operational or financial method. Under the equity share approach, this is intended to be associated with your economic interest in an entity. So if you owned 40% of an entity, you would include 40% of those emissions. It's very similar to significant influence types of decisions you'd make in an accounting consolidation. Under the control method, under either operational or financial control, you need to understand that once you've made that conclusion that you have operational or financial control, it's an on-off switch. So you include 100% or 0% of those emissions associated with those entities. For things like operational control, you might consider uh, whether you have the ability to implement operational policies. And financial control, you'd consider whether you have the ability to direct financial policies. And with that, that's with a view towards gaining economic benefits. Now, we see mostly that the operational control has been applied uh, by most companies, and that's because they feel that they have the most responsibility 
for the emissions produced in activities where they can set those operational policies. And on the same token, they have the ability then to influence the activities that can lead to reductions in those, em- in those emissions. Now, the second step in setting your boundaries is the operational uh, boundary decisions. This has two steps. One is the first is to define what the operational boundary is. And then it's to define your emissions sources within that operational boundary and then categorize them. So the operational boundary then includes your org boundary, which is scope one and two, and then it extends to scope three. So this will be also indirect emissions, and there are 15 different categories. If you report under the corporate standard, then you have the option to include those scope three emissions. But if you're reporting under the scope three standard, then you do need to take some additional steps to evaluating how relevant those 15 categories are. And you can find some examples for what you need to think through in our handbook. Now I'm going to turn it over to Marissa to take us through what scope one, two, and three start to look like in our inventory boundary. Thanks, Christina. So let's start with scope one. Scope one emissions are direct emissions from sources that are owned or controlled by the entity. So that's sources like company facilities or company vehicles. As an example, think about a hotel that has a corporate jet that it uses for executive travel. The emissions associated with the fuel burned in that corporate jet are recorded as scope one emissions. Let's move on to scope two. Scope two emissions are indirect emissions from purchased electricity consumed by the entity. Almost all entities purchase electricity, so scope two is going to be relevant to almost everyone. And for many, scope two is actually going to be one of the largest sources of emissions in a corporate inventory. So it's an important category of emissions, but it's also a complex one. And the reason for that complexity is because there are two methods to calculate scope two, the location-based method and the market-based method. The important thing to note is that both methods use the same activity data, which is electricity consumption from utility bills, meter readings, or maybe an estimate. But each method uses different emission factors. The location-based method uses the grid average emission factor, so this method is driven by geographical location. The market-based method is driven by renewable energy purchasing decisions and derives emission factors from contractual instruments. So these are things like power purchase agreements, known as PPAs, or renewable energy certificates, known as RECs. The important thing to understand here is that contractual instruments allow consumers to claim an emission factor associated with renewable energy generation from sources like solar or wind. The location-based method is always required. The market-based method is required if an entity has any operations where contractual instruments are available 
and those contractual instruments meet the scope two quality criteria. Like I said, scope two is complex, but our handbook has some great content that really starts to demystify scope two emissions. Both scope one and scope two are within the organizational boundary and both are required for reporting. But now we're moving on to scope three, which is outside the organizational boundary and is an optional category of reporting. Scope three emissions often represent the majority of an entity's emissions, and there is increasing stakeholder pressure for entities to report on this category of emissions. Scope three are indirect emissions that originate upstream and downstream in the value chain. There are 15 distinct categories. Think about things like business travel, employee commuting, and purchase goods and services. Depending on the scope three category, there are various calculation methods that can be used. For example, activity data might be based on spend, distance traveled, or fuel consumed. Our handbook is packed with some great examples of how to apply these different calculation methods to the different scope three categories in various scenarios. Now that we have a basic understanding of what the three scopes of emissions are, Christina, can you talk us through how an entity would track all these emissions? Thanks, Marissa. So as we start to talk about tracking emissions, I want to just bring everyone back to think about why you're doing the inventory in the first place. Maybe you have to comply with some regulatory requirements, but your company may have also set public targets uh, and made commitments that they want to start to demonstrate progress towards. And the first step that you want to take in tracking emissions is to determine your base year. You can set a base year for just scope one and two, or you can also set one for scope three. It can be a single year, or it could be an average of multiple years of activity under the protocol. You want it to be representative of normal operations for your entity. So you're probably not going to pick 2020, but maybe you start with 2019. You want it to be the first year where you've got good data to report. Now, there's a few different ways you could define targets. There's an absolute target or an intensity target, and both of those are described in the protocol. The absolute target is going to be activities where you're reducing emissions. Kind of think about it like the top line. So you maybe a 50% reduction of emissions for your scope one. You could set this by geography, or you could set this by scope two, or in totality. Another type of target is the intensity target. This could be defined as 75% reduction per square foot, or it could be set using a financial metric. It's really just a metric that's most meaningful to your organization and their goals. Now that you've started tracking emissions, the other thing you need to think about is recalculations and something called a significance threshold, which you'll need to make a determination of and disclose to the users of your greenhouse gas inventory. If you take a look in our handbook, you'll find descriptions of how to think about the recalculations and significant thresholds and some examples of what that looks like and how that starts to come together for your inventory. Now I'll turn it over to Julie, who will close us out. Thanks, Christina. That's a lot of information, so let me summarize. We first heard from Christina about the boundaries. She told us about a company's organizational boundary, and it's about its operational boundary. And together, those two things make up your inventory boundary. 
And then we went to Marissa, and Marissa told us all about the three scopes of emissions. So about scope one and scope two, that it will always be included in the organizational boundary. And then Marissa talked us through the scope three categories, which are optional. And if you're following the protocols, corporate standard, you have a choice of which categories you decide to include, if any at all. And then we went back to Christina, who told us the importance of tracking this over time and the concept of a base year and what that all means. So the question is now, what should you do next? We recommend that you take a look, a closer look at our handbook. It goes through all of today's concepts, but in much more detail. It has calculations. It shows you how they are done. It has examples, and we also have an illustrative example of what a GHG emission statement actually looks like when you get around to reporting. You can also do the replay to our webcast, which is 90 minutes. And you're going to find all of these things on KPMG Financial Reporting View on our ESG resources page, in addition to many more resources. So that's it for today. Thank you for joining. Thank you for listening to this KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast. For more in-depth ESG-related financial reporting developments, analysis, and podcast episodes, type into your browser, visit.kpmg.us forward slash ESG reporting, and be sure to subscribe today.